And so gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the reflections of our hearts and minds together this morning be found pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. There's a Martin Joseph song called Strange Way, which I vividly remember being introduced to as a teenager. It's a song that reflects on the cross and how it's just not how you expect God to do things. In Jesus, we see something so different, power and majesty displayed in meekness and in humility. And ever since I've heard it, that thought has remained with me that God so often confounds our expectations. God does indeed move in mysterious ways. Even those of us who've been doing our best to follow Jesus for some time can still very easily get drawn into patterns of thinking about God that don't find their truth in the story of Jesus, especially in a world like ours where success is so important and being seen to do the right thing is often as important as actually doing the right thing. And so it's a challenge to us. It's a challenge to hold on to the way Jesus lays out for us, even if it doesn't look like the road we should take. Most clearly, we surely see this in the cross, which looked like the very definition of failure. The people had drifted away. There seemed to be only pain and anguish. And yet in the midst of that, God is doing something quite incredible that would bring life to us all. For death and struggle and departures and endings can in fact lead to life and hope and new beginnings. Something that looks hard, taking a more challenging road, is not always to be avoided. In fact, sometimes it is what is demanded of us. Indeed, that challenging path may be where the life-giving adventure is to be found. Now, the people of Israel knew all too well that God moved in mysterious ways as we meet them in our Old Testament reading from Numbers 21. How odd of God to save this way. The people of Israel were unhappy, and so, as was their habit, they began complaining. Pages and pages of complaining you find in Numbers why have they brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, there's no water, we don't like this food. Things weren't good, but the people of Israel discovered that things could in fact get much worse. Miserable food is one thing, but how would they survive with the threat of snake bites? We read that the Lord had sent the poisonous serpents because the people were complaining not only about Moses, but this time they were speaking against God as well. Not confident in their ability to intercede with God, they beg Moses to go and ask God to take the serpents away. Moses did as the people asked him to do, praying that God would save those that he'd led into the wilderness. We don't know the content of Moses' prayer, but I think it's a reasonable assumption that he did indeed ask God to get rid of the serpents. But God didn't take them away. Instead, he told Moses to make a replica of a poisonous serpent to set it on a pole and if anyone was bitten by a snake then looked at Moses' snake they would live. Moses did as he was told. He made a serpent of bronze. He put it on a pole and those who had been bitten by a serpent were saved by looking at Moses' creation. How odd of God to save this way 
Surely it would have made more sense to just do what the people of Israel had asked and, you know, get rid of all the snakes. It remains a mystery why God chose to save those who were bitten by the snakes by having them look at the bronze replica. Even though it's not usually a good idea to second-guess God, I can't help but wonder why God would save those bitten by the poisonous snake in this way. Why should the people of Israel look at this inanimate object for their salvation? Because friends, you see, to look, to see, to really see is never easy. In particular, it's never easy to see death. I think it's easy to be sympathetic to the people of Israel in this moment. They're being asked to look on, to see that which threatens their very existence. To live, they must look on death itself. Look on death and live. There are certainly lots of interesting philosophical discussions to be had about finding life in the acknowledgement of even making peace with death and its part in our lives. And we might return to that in a few moments, but I'm not sure that's the real focus here. Instead, I think this is a reminder of what it means for them, the people of Israel and everyone who has followed on after them, including you and me, a reminder of what it means to be chosen by God. You see, to be called by God is a serious business. To be God's people is a life and death matter. God wouldn't have God's people, the promised people, presume that we, because we're chosen, we're free of danger. We are all going to die. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. But the death Israel faces is not just any death. It's a death determined by being God's chosen people. They wouldn't be in this situation, were they not? The story of Israel is the story of the people training to become a people whose survival depends on learning to trust God in a snake-infested world. How odd of God to save this way. Jesus said to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus will be lifted up, but he first is lifted high on the cross. And we're told that he must die this way because being lifted up from the earth, he will draw people to him. Just as Israel had to look on the serpent to live, so now it seems we must look on Jesus' death if we are to have life. I'd suggest that our instinct is to make the most of the differences here, that Jesus on the cross is so very different from Moses' serpent. Jesus was lifted high on the cross, but the cross couldn't hold him. He was raised from the dead to ascend to the Father. And we know the cross couldn't hold them, not least because our cross is empty. Jesus won. We don't need to look at him dying on the cross. In fact, sometimes we're drawn away from the cross altogether. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. In these verses from John 3, we're told not to look but to believe. We believe, moreover, that if we believe hard enough, that we won't have to worry about the snakes. We assume that God has done for us what God did not do for Israel. God got rid of the snakes for us. 
that our cross is empty, therefore, tempts us to believe that we are no longer people in danger. After all, when all is said and done, as John 3.16 makes clear, it's all about God's love. God so loved the world that we might love one another. Grasping that makes it harder to understand, I think, the dramatic tension in the Gospel of John between those who choose to remain in the dark and those who love the light. We're told that those who live in the darkness will hate those who are the light. Why should anyone hate a people who want to share God's light and God's love? It's all about love and death. The light has come into the world, but the light that shines from the cross did not rid our world of snakes. Eternal life doesn't mean that we escape death, but rather that in death we will not be abandoned by Jesus. Like the people of Israel who had been bitten by the poisonous snakes, we have to learn to trust God by looking to the cross of Christ. We're to look at the cross of Christ and see there the goodness of our God. He has taken into his life our love of the darkness so that we might live in the light of the cross. To believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only son requires therefore that we look to the cross. To look and to believe are inseparable. We must see as well that the cross is not empty, that Jesus did die there. When we try to avoid that reality, we lose something very important. You know, there are many theories about what exactly happens on the cross, how exactly God brings life and possibility from this death and destruction, about the nature of God and how all our sins are atoned for in those fateful moments. They all have important things to say. They each offer us a window onto the truth and significance of the cross. But for this morning, I want to draw our attention to what the Apostle Paul says when he writes that if we're to look on the cross and live, we must recognise that we, in words from Ephesians 2, were dead through the trespasses and sins in which we once lived. To look on the cross of Christ means we are able to see that we have been ruled by the power of sin, like the people of Israel were bitten by the snakes, and it's not at all clear that we will survive. But Paul never leaves us there. To look on the cross is not an invitation to wallow in our sinfulness. Rather, to look on the cross means bringing an end to our fascination with sin. By grace we have been saved, and by grace we have been made alive in Christ. And this means that we've been raised up with him, even being seated in the heavenly places with Jesus. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man has been lifted up, that we might also be for the world, a light, a witness, a beacon of God's love. The cross is a call to action for you and me. It's a call to change. It's a call not to take the freedom that we have in Christ for granted, but to set about ensuring that other people might come to experience that same freedom for themselves. That'll mean us taking opportunities to share about the hope that we have in Jesus, to tell our story about how we came to be his disciples and to invite others to explore Jesus for themselves. It'll mean working in partnership with all those seeking to bring God's peace to the world, 
caring for the environment, ending the racism and misogyny and other forms of discrimination that so blight the lives of so many. It's doing what we can to offer hope and hospitality to everyone, working for economic justice and whole person health care and a whole lot more besides. And it'll involve being responsive to the movements of the Holy Spirit, who invites us to partner with God in all sorts of different ways and gives us the tasks of discerning how we will serve God in these moments. You see, to be raised with Christ means the end of any attempt to just passively note the crucifixion. But instead it's a call to look, to really see, and to let our lives be changed by its reality. You cannot blithely stare at that in which you participate. And it turns out that in the process of learning to see and respond, the life we're given through Jesus' death leads us to become a people bronzed and lifted up by God so that the world may see there is an alternative to being captives of death. Friends, in looking at the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross, in taking the challenging road of living out our faith in ways that will not always bring us success or comfort, we might just find ourselves coming to life. How odd of God to save this way that is, by making us his church. But then it's best not to second-guess God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we marvel at your capacity to bring life and hope and change where we see death and darkness and destruction. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the courage to be bold in our faith, to take courageous decisions and to not be afraid of the difficult paths. Lord, we pray that you would help us in all things to look to you. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us not to ignore the significance and importance of your death, but instead to look at the crucifixion and find new life in it. Lord, we thank you that you are at work through your Holy Spirit. Come and lead us on today, we pray. Amen.